So I guess I want to preface this by saying I feel like I'm a little bit nervous about my interview skills being rusty since it's been such a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think we're all feeling a little out of it <laughs> anyway. But, true, true, true. You know, so we'll do the best we can with it. I'm John Totten, and this is Between Us. So I guess there's so much to talk about, especially with your area of expertise. Yeah. And I have a few notes that I want to get to, but I read the chapter in in Roy's book, Core Competencies of Relational Psychoanalysis, and in your chapter, Considering Culture from a Psychoanalytic Perspective. And one of the things that I thought, I thought, we're still making a case for this, aren't we? Right. Well... The last time I gave you an intro to a new interview was June of 2019. I was on paternity leave for the birth of my daughter. I had no idea what the next year had in store for us, my family, and the world. Our last two episodes include a conversation between Mason and I regarding the pandemic we're currently in, and also a tribute to a dear friend we lost during that time. This era has brought the death of several close friends of mine at the same time as watching my daughter grow up into an active and bright-eyed toddler. Truly the best of times and the worst of times. Much of it has been spent, admittedly, in the comfort of my own home, watching on the news as the world seems to crumble around us. In May of 2020, the murder of George Floyd brought the public tension caused over the last decade by police brutality against the black community to a new level of action as riots erupted all over the country. People were mad, and rightfully so. My sessions started to take on a very consistent character. My clients of color took it all in stride with a kind of, of course, attitude, while my white patients squirmed in discomfort trying to figure out the best way to be helpful. But one thing was for certain, every session in some way was about what was happening in society. 
The descendant therapies of psychoanalysis have historically been bad at addressing these issues. Surrounding disciplines like community psychology and social work have been better. Our guest today is working to change that. Dr. Usha Tamala Nara is a professor of counseling at Boston College. Her book, Psychoanalytic Theory and Cultural Competence in Psychotherapy, is available from the APA, and she also contributed the chapter on considering culture from a psychoanalytic perspective to the book that we discussed in episode 14, and she was kind enough to discuss issues of culture and racism and what is happening in the news with me. The case still needs to be made. Yeah, that in fact it's not mainstream that we talk about culture and context and race and diversity within psychology, right? That we've been pioneering, I guess, this area for decades now, and mm-hmm. yet it's still not well integrated into mental health practice. Uh, overall question is, where did the idea that culture doesn't matter in our practice come from? The idea that culture doesn't matter is is kind of a it's a it's an idea that came from the efforts made in psychotherapy to make it a more objective or neutral kind of science and so it has a long history dating back to all of our theoretical paradigms that we use in psychotherapy traditionally so that includes psychoanalytic cognitive behavioral humanistic psychologies the focus was so much on the individual and what was going on internally as though it was somehow separate from what was external to that person. So Hmm. the idea that, you know, the treatment should focus specifically on internal conflicts or certain maladaptive thoughts or behaviors, the focus on symptoms, all of these things really kind of got situated within the individual and almost as if the person existed only in certain contexts, like maybe in the context of a relationship with a parent or with a sibling or with a friend or a romantic partner. But outside of those contexts, the role of culture and race and social class, the various ways in which we live with different inequities in in our world, those kinds of things were seen as more peripheral to a person's psychological development. And so, and I think part of it was because Theorists were really trying to make efforts to be objective in their scientific understandings of human development, but clearly it wasn't objective because it didn't include all of the different variables that in fact do impact development, and we've been learning more and more over the last many decades about these issues, in a, both in terms of research and uh, in terms of practice. So, and were they concerned about legitimacy? At that time? Yeah, they were concerned about legitimacy. You know, if we think about the late uh, 1800s into the 20th century, there was a growing emphasis on scientific objectivism, influence of the Enlightenment period in Western Europe as well as the United States. And so there was, there definitely was pressure to maintain this kind of almost distant scientific approach that Uh, And anything, including things like spiritual beliefs and religion, were seen sort of outside of the purview of science. Hmm. And so there was a great deal of scrutiny to those people who would introduce ideas around context. So it's not that people, psychoanalysis, for example, didn't think of social and cultural context along its history. In fact, in uh, the 
uh, 40s, 50s, the 60s, Harry Stack Sullivan, among other people in the interpersonal school of psychoanalysis, hmm. presented different ideas challenging Freud's and the early analysts' emphasis on this individual psyche as separate from the social. And they, they wrote extensively about the impact of social inequities and culture and context, religion, gender, and how that impacted individual development. And they emphasized interpersonal interactions over the individual psyche or interpsychic mm-hmm. issues. So it wasn't that they didn't they didn't present these issues or that people haven't talked about these issues, but the problem that it posed for science and medical science and psychiatry in particular is that that if you say that the cause or the source of someone's stress is social and economic perhaps, um, maybe it's racial, then the the treatment would be different. It wouldn't necessarily focus only on the person adapting to those problems, those social problems, but in fact it would mean that we'd have to reexamine and maybe restructure all of society in some way. And so I think those theoretical ideas that were presented that emphasize social context were experienced as a threat to that kind of dominant uh, psychoanalytic paradigm, which was eco-psychology in those days, it would also pose an economic kind of threat, too, to the profession. I'm thinking about that comment that if the social mattered, then that would be a threat to their their methods. And it seems like what we have now is a better understanding that it doesn't have to be at all. Yeah, right. In fact, we can find ways to help people who are suffering identify what the sources of that suffering might be, and it's often an interaction. Sometimes it's purely external, that it's circumstances that have caused those stresses, and sometimes it's an interaction of what they might be experiencing within their relationships, with their interpersonal relationships, within families, their relationships romantically, and also external social pressures and stresses and anxieties. So, now what we're understanding is that we can actually begin to hold all of these different influences in a person's life and how to make meaning out of them. How do individuals struggle to make meaning out of them? What kind of action do they take in their lives to cope with those stressors? But to not name it at all, I think, really was damaging to many people, you know, in the sense that they they internalized it. They thought there was something wrong with them. So an example of that dating back to the time when, you know, women and girls were who were traumatized, you know, sexually violated, sexually mm-hmm. assaulted and sexually abused were not believed, right, that this, this mm-hmm. was actually happening. What that did was produce this idea that there was something inadequate and something problematic and damaged about that girl or that woman rather than something was really wrong with the perpetrator who did this and the act of perpetration, but also the people who stood by and didn't intervene. And so the impact of those kinds of, you know, approaches where you put the entire focus on what's happening intrapsychically actually had some severe damage to many, many people. And if we move into the world of race, that realm, then we can think about how so many people of color have been told over and over again that they're too sensitive, you know, that somehow those microaggressions are not real. That's just something you make up in your mind. And in fact, oftentimes I find that with my clients, 
They often question, was that racism? Am I being too sensitive? There's a lot of self-doubt and questioning and internalization of those messages that actually have lasting impact on people that are directly related to mental health symptoms like depression, anxiety, difficulty trusting people, you know, all of those things that we care so much about in terms of mental health and well-being. Our field historically has served the purpose of gaslighting people in those categories. Yeah, whether that was the intent or not, and I don't think it was intended to be that way, but I think it became that way for many people, and it developed a mistrust you know, for people who needed help very badly and wanted to seek that help but didn't know where to go to. And I think it still continues, unfortunately, for many others. The other thing I think about in those examples is just regardless of the category or what is being talked about and denied or confirmed by the therapist, how I don't really think about my job as an arbiter of what is true for my client. Mm-hmm. To, to tell someone that their assault didn't happen or that they're being too sensitive seems like a particular uh, malpractice in the, in the category of um, race and gender, but also bad treatment. Right, right. Yeah, right. We are not the arbiters of, you know, the truth, and we don't know the full truth and experience uh, of our clients until we really inquire uh, with deep curiosity and openness and and with humility to know that we actually we don't have all the answers. We ought to stay open to learning something new from our clients every single time, you know, rather than sort of coming to conclusions prematurely. You know, and I would say that there are many other examples I could speak of that, you know, where theory has been primary, you know, a particular paradigm takes over learning about the client in their own right. Mm-hmm. But ideally, theories are developed based on what we're hearing from our clients, right? They're not necessarily meant to be just applied in these uniform, formulaic kind of ways. Another example of that certainly has come up around client sexual identity and gender identity. There's an assumption that one sexual orientation or another or one particular type of gender identity or another is is more valued or is more normative or is healthier. Those kinds of traumas have been endured by people for decades and decades and centuries, really, within the realm of psychotherapy, certainly for over a century now. So again, people are apprehensive sometimes of seeking help from a therapist because they're wondering, "Am am I going to be fully seen here and can I really be myself, you know, my full self? And ironically, When someone tries to seek a therapist, they're looking for that space where they want to be and they need to be seen fully and understood. And in a way, they're doing that. They're seeking that and they need that because in other parts of their life, in their actual lived experience, they haven't had that experience of feeling like they could be fully themselves. It's often the case that people are kind of shifting from one context to another feeling like they have to be only partly themselves wherever they go. So psychotherapy actually has the potential to really offer that more complete experience of understanding and empathy. So it's even more problematic when that experience doesn't happen, when it's not possible. That leads me to think about how white our field is. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I feel really lucky to have a caseload that is mostly not straight white men these days. I don't know why it is, but one of the things that I do more and more when someone is consulting with me is to ask in our first meeting, what do you think about working with a man? What do you think about working with a straight guy? Or what do you think about working with a white guy? I'm not saying it's universally effective, but for the most part, I've learned that my clients appreciate me speaking to the elephant in the room. And many times the answer for my clients of color is, I tried to find someone that I could work with from my culture, but there just aren't a lot to choose from. This is changing for sure, but it speaks to me about the failure in our training systems to recruit diverse counselors. Oftentimes, the fact that I can acknowledge myself as their consolation choice and be okay with that helps me create an alliance from the beginning. It also helps my clients know that no topic is off limits and that I see institutional racism as a problem, even if the institutional racism is in my own field. It's gotten better in terms of representation, but it's clearly not anywhere near what we need to really match the needs of people. I fully agree that our field needs to diversify, you know, much more than where we are today. At the same time, our clients are also looking for therapists of any background, really, who are willing to try to understand their experience without pathologizing their families or pathologizing their cultural groups, you know, their religious groups and so on. So they're they're looking for someone who's willing to do that with them and engage with them in that way. Yeah. So, yes, many, many people are looking specifically for therapists of color, but Others are really looking for somebody to just understand them mm. and to really do that in a way that isn't pathologizing. Um, I saw a clip of someone telling a story, and maybe it was like a consult, a consultee or someone, but someone was telling a story about their patient and how they couldn't get their patient off the topic of race as if that wasn't what they were there for. And I have a sort of fascination with this person. And I guess it's always a, a little bit of a shift and a wake up that this was actually the norm. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't also want to put that in the past. I think it's still the norm in many mm-hmm. ways today, in many settings today. And maybe, you know, mm-hmm. in certain settings that's not true and I think people are actively engaging in issues of race. But I would say that that's still not the norm. Yeah, it is interesting. And I think many of us, you know, I had trained over 25 years ago now. During that time, there was no mandatory requirement to take courses on diversity. It was very rare that my professors would talk about race or culture or context. It was just, it was invisible. And it wasn't something that uh, one was socialized to think about or talk about and, and certainly not talk about openly. It sounds like a really bizarre concept, you know, given where we are today mm-hmm. in 2020. But truth of it was that it wasn't it wasn't something that was in our repertoire to talk about. And the more invisible it was, it was difficult to articulate the experience that you might have had. I knew certain things that we talked about in our courses didn't sit right with me, but I could, didn't have the language for it at that time. Yeah. And. And when I graduated and did my postdoctoral training and, and beyond that, it, was, it wasn't as though I had a lot of, I actually had no specific role model who would talk about race and culture. But I had theoretical mentors, I would say. I would read books that were written by people who were pioneers in multicultural psychology. 
like Lilian Comatias and mm-hmm. Beverly Green, Daryl Wing Sue, folks like this who are writing about these issues. So I'd read. Mm-hmm. I had to develop sort of my own thinking about this, independent of, you know, a mentor, a series of professors who are kind of engaging with these topics. I'm assuming that was a long process, but developing your own thinking about it, what did it look like? I, I think one of the things that I had to ask myself is, what do I do with this knowledge? So I, I trained as a psychoanalytically oriented clinician, and I had to really ask myself, was I going to put all those questions that came up in my mind aside and just accept that this practice would be conducted a certain way or the theory would be you know, it is what it is, or was I going to learn something further to maybe modify something about this theory? And one of the first experiences I had after my postdoc was to start a new program at the Cambridge Hospital called the Asian Mental Health Clinic. I was very interested in reaching out to different uh, communities, Asian American communities in the Boston area, in Cambridge and Somerville, the surrounding areas. And I started to wonder about you know, why is it that when we, the literature at that time, tended to speak to racial minorities as though they were people who needed to be treated in a particular kind of way in psychotherapy? For example, most of the literature suggested that racial minorities should receive short-term problem-solving, you know, approaches, CBT. And the rationale that was often used was that racial minorities are less verbal, they're not as interested in insight or they prefer directive therapy. This is the type of language that was used. And I found that really problematic because the people that I was working with really wanted to talk about their experience and it was multi-layered. It was complex. There was a great deal of unresolved conflict and tensions that they were struggling with intrapsychically, interpersonal conflicts that they wanted to understand better. None of that really added up for me. I then started to wonder why is the literature written in a way that assumes that the only people who have an unconscious part of their mind are white doesn't make sense when it's really a human experience, right, that psychoanalysis was talking about. I started to delve deeper into what I was observing and learning and working with my my uh, patients at that time. I started to kind of write about what I was observing, but over time really felt that it was important to modify the theories themselves because the theories that we were trained on were rooted in a particular sociocultural context and persisted in a certain way also because of a, uh, an ongoing sociocultural force or context. So mm-hmm. so this is why my work has sort of directed itself towards uh, modifying, changing, and challenging some aspects of the existing theories that we use. And can you give me an example of what some of those modifications were? Sure. One modification has to do with listening to indigenous narrative, and it's a complicated term that uh, Karen Seeley had used the term indigenous narrative, and I sort of used that in my work to refer to really understanding the the ways in which cultural narrative is experienced by the client, not just from what the therapist assumes based on their own assumptions or understandings of a culture, but really trying to understand the cultural narrative as experienced both consciously and unconsciously by the by the client. And so 
Let me expand on that for a second because it's, you know, when I say indigenous narratives, it's it's listening to what what a cultural narrative might be, what a particular narrative of a client might be, but also what lies beneath the meanings and interpretations that that client makes of their sociocultural context. It also involves listening to how and in which context they were formed Hmm. and the anxiety that's produced in actually sharing or talking about that narrative with the therapist. I can give you an example, a personal Mm -hmm. example. Sure. You know, and this is lies outside of psychotherapy. This happens all the time in the way we interact with each other when there are cultural differences. I have two kids and my older son, and when he was born, I worked with a pediatrician who I really adored, just really loved working with him. And he treated my son for anemia, which he had in the first year of his life, and he uh, got better and healed from it. And so I was very grateful to this physician. Hmm. But I remember it was my son's three-month appointment, and he told me, well, your son, you know, the baby now needs to move to uh, sleeping in a crib. And, you know, he should no longer be sleeping in the bed with you and your husband. And I thought this was going to be hard to move him to the crib because he doesn't seem to be interested in the crib and we're quite happy with him in the bed and he sleeps well and we're doing okay. And I asked the pediatrician, I said, are you sure he seems so, he's still so little, he's only three months old. And he said, no, now is the time to teach him how to sleep on his own. And he he taught us the Ferber method and we let the baby cry just try to soothe himself and go to sleep eventually. Tried this method that night, and it was horrible, and the baby cried and cried, and we eventually just moved him back to the bed. The next day, I I talked to my mother, my mother who was born and raised in India. I was born in India and came here as a child. Mm. She told me, she said, are you out of your mind? Like, why would you try something like that? He's only three months old. Mm -hmm. Something didn't feel right to me when the physician suggested it, and it was highly unconscious for me. You know, I didn't know what it was, but it didn't feel right. Because in my family, we did things a different way. But he's suggesting to me a whole new perspective on actually development, you know, on child development, infant development, and also what the parent's role is in raising your child and taking care of your child. And similarly, you know, when my baby was six months old, He said, well, you need to move him off of the bottle and into a sippy cup. You have to transition him out of this. Wow. And and I thought, this is too young. He's not ready for that. But I would try sometimes to give my son a sippy cup, which he refused. He was happy with his bottle. But by the one-year appointment, the doctor said, you know, have you gotten off? You've gotten off the bottle, right? And he's no longer off the bottle. So I said, yes, he is no longer on the bottle. And I just remember pushing down the baby's bottle in the diaper bag that was next to me so the physician wouldn't see it. Hmm. I use this as a metaphor because it's not because I deliberately wanted to hide things from my physician. Every time I tried to share with him that I had another perspective, he was bound by his formulation based on the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines. (laughs) You know, he had a paradigm. Right that he was functioning under. And because of that adherence to that paradigm, and it could work certainly in certain situations like the treatment of anemia, for example, right? At the same time, when he 
stuck to those guidelines in a way that sort of dismissed or ignored a different narrative, which was fundamentally, you know, important to our family's life, you know, and, and the baby's life and to my way of parenting. Or this assumption that every parent has to take care of their child in a way that they're fostering this kind of sense of independence of that baby from such an early age, you know, and how different mm-hmm. that is from a, a typical Indian context where, you know, which is much more about developing a sense of interdependence in the family. And here I am sort of, you know, someone who is bicultural. I'm talking to my mom and the physician and feeling very much in between and then raising a child taking care of my baby in this kind of in-between space. So there's a way in which our clients, I think, are always telling us something about those cultural narratives just by the sheer fact that we also have a cultural narrative Mm -hmm. and a lens through which we're hearing the client. And we, we tend to miss things. We tend to, you know, communicate to our clients that some things are less important than other things. And so... The modification that I'm talking about with regard to indigenous narrative and listening to indigenous narrative suggests that we need to listen differently. We need to kind of listen to the unconscious meanings. And also, why is it that a client may have difficulty sharing certain things with us based on their assumptions about us, perhaps, or something we're communicating? What is happening in the intersubjective space between the client and the therapist that is producing anxiety perhaps for both people when it comes to these differences around race or culture or context? Uh, when you talked about hiding the bag, I, I wanted the doctor to notice, you know, and be curious about it. Yeah, he and he didn't notice that, um, I don't think. And mm-hmm. we just never spoke about it. And I just sort of didn't want to engage in any conflict around that because I had already decided that my son would get off the bottle and move into drinking from a cup when he's ready to do so. And sure enough, he did that a month later, you know, on his, and he was more curious about the cup and it happened pretty organically rather than sort of me deciding for him, I guess, you know, that that would be the next step. But there was something very prescriptive about the physician's approach that made it difficult And I trusted him a great deal with other things, but this wasn't something that I could share with him. So it's interesting because even in a relationship with someone who's trying to help you, right, a healer, a therapist, a doctor, who you admire and respect, you could still have those moments, right, when you're really not willing to share certain things because Mm -hmm. of what you're perceiving in that other person. Yeah, and I think what you said about avoiding the conflict re- makes me think of a theme that comes up for us in many of our talks is um, I think it's quite normal for a patient to want to avoid that conflict or confrontation or difference, but it's also quite important for the practitioner to be able to talk about that kind of difference. And I think it's really tempting for us to avoid that as well. And then we're in a collusion, it seems like. Yes. Yeah. And I think that happens a great deal around issues that feel particularly traumatic in the social sense. Race, for example, is a traumatic subject. It's a series of traumatic events and and it's, it's a traumatic experience that's ongoing in the United States. 
our public discourse around race tends to be really problematic as well. And so we haven't found a way to talk about race that feels honest, that feels somewhat forward-thinking in, in a way, or that moves us closer to connection. And oftentimes, ta- talking about race leads to disconnection in social discourse. And oftentimes, people are socialized, many white people are socialized to not talk about race openly, whereas a lot of people of color, most most of us are taught to think about race pretty actively from a young age. And so there, there are these ways in which uh, when we enter the therapy relationship, therapists often feel anxious about bringing up that topic of race because it's already a traumatic issue. I think we worry that if we bring it up, then are we going to cause a disruption? Are we introducing something that is not important to the client or are we imposing our agenda on the client? Which is really interesting because we bring up many other things with our clients that are incredibly personal and and sometimes painful. You know, we talk Mm. about their sex life. We talk about money. We talk about a lot of things that Mm -hmm. can also be difficult and traumatic. But it's I've always found it fascinating that we have a much harder time engaging in conversations about race. We're also more comfortable, I think, talking about cultural differences than we are about race and sometimes less comfortable talking about gender identity than sexual orientation, you know, depending on uh, the particular client and therapist dyad. You know, I think my response to that as a white person is that um, I can talk about sex or money or all kinds of vulnerable topics with my clients with a with a lower amount of shame and guilt than I can talk about race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I wonder if it's the therapist's own difficulty with their own feelings of shame and guilt that cause them to avoid the topic. I think that's very true for many therapists. And I think there's variation in uh, mm. among what among white therapists, as I understand it. Uh, mm. For some white therapists, I, I think that the feelings of shame can be overwhelming, guilt can be overwhelming, and then efforts to try to minimize that or contain that as you know the therapist interacts with a client. Um, that can be difficult. Mm-hmm. For other white therapists, I don't know that some people don't find it relevant or as relevant. They still find it something in the realm of sociology or something, you know, that's not relevant to the work that they're doing with their clients. So I think there's variations depending on the person. There could be a higher level of awareness of these issues and then guilt and shame and other uncomfortable feelings, maybe even traumatic experiences play a role in that for some people. And for other people, I think it's more of a paradigm issue where they're feeling like this is not really, that's not what I do. You know, and there are folks who think that way. That's not in the realm of psychology or psychotherapy. I might be a little bit less diplomatic than you. I think of allowing it to be irrelevant in someone's mind as a way of maintaining power and privilege. As someone who grew up in like white suburbia uh, among people who, you know, told me my whole life that race didn't really matter you know before i investigated the kind of like the rich history of my own racial identity i've spoken about this on the show before but i grew up in a christian culture in the southeast with two practicing christians as parents but an awareness that my mom had converted from judaism and had grown up in the jewish culture of chicago 
So my whole life when people would ask me what I was, and I would answer, I'm half Jewish, they would say, no, you're not. And then I would say, well, then I don't know what I am. It was my experience that the more ethnically diverse someone was, the more that heritage would be diminished as not mattering. That in the end, to the people who were saying these things to me, they wanted everyone to just be Americans or the same. Similarly, the response from many well-intended people in regards to people of color who could not as easily be assimilated as the Jews was the infamous, I don't see color, as if the colorblindness was a virtue. It seems like the modern equivalent of that is all lives matter, which serves to white out the message of black lives matter. These messages are insidious because on the surface, they aren't poorly intended, but they serve to stamp out the progress or the suffering of those who are struggling. There's kind of a, a disavowal of identity, really. You know, I think that's happened with many white people. I sometimes get that response from clients who are white, and when I ask them, tell me about your cultural background and your ethnic background, your family heritage, you know, questions like that, mm-hmm. and they'll just say, I'm just white. Mm-hmm. But then when I ask them things like, tell me about your family's religious you know, beliefs, or did you grow up with any tradition, or were there... Uh, do you know much about your family's or your, you know, your extended family's migration history to the U.S.? Then they start to tell me more, but they typically mm-hmm. are not asked that question. So they don't ask themselves those questions. Mm-hmm. So they, it's, it's almost like they're taught that it should be invisible. Right. So it, it is really kind of a dissociated experience. Yeah. And it's been kind of justified by saying, well, if you bring it up, then you're you're potentially going to offend somebody by bringing this up. In fact, if I agree with you that I think it's a way to feel less threatened. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's a way to maintain a sense of power, some some sense of kind of this national identity, perhaps, for some people. And then the idea that it's dissociated for me, it should be dissociated for you as well. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it gets projected, that idea that it shouldn't be important to anybody, you know, let's just all forget about it. And then the idea of assimilation comes in and, like, becomes political and, like, this, like, American ideal of what it means to, like, come to this country and, and as, a, as a non-white person. Yes, yes. Naturally, that leads to some people belonging here and other people not belonging here. So some people are Americans and everybody else is like the other or less American. Yeah, there is a way in which the early socialization around race contributes to all of this that manifests in adulthood around, well, we don't have to wait till adulthood. It happens in elementary school (laughs) and and beyond when non-white people are then kind of the containers for all kinds of projections of the other and the qualities that feel unacceptable to mm. oneself. It's the other person who is stupid, lazy, or nerdy, or whatever, you know, the stereotype might be, yeah. or less attractive, less desirable. There's so many, you know, that are completely projected onto other people, so you don't have to feel those things. Right, right. Yeah, do you, do you have any thoughts on uh, psychotherapy or psychoanalysis usefulness in fighting oppression? Yeah, I do. In fact, this is one of the 
modifications that I suggest in my framework is the attention to social oppression. Hmm. That, in fact, if we go back to thinking about trauma, that is not a new thing in psychotherapy. Psychotherapists Mm -hmm. regularly work with people who have survived traumatic events. I don't see social and political oppression as different from trauma. You know, it's a different form of trauma, but and often it's systemic, but it's also interpersonal. And so to me, the exploration of oppression, whether it's social, racial, or political, is critical in psychotherapy. And I think that therapists have to open themselves up for scrutinizing their own stereotypes and assumptions, recognize that they might also be complicit in how the client experiences oppression. So could there be something that's reproduced in the therapeutic relationship that is, again, painful for the client? The other thing about psychotherapy is that we try in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, uh, we aim to speak truthfully about experience and speak about truth, about painful realities. And so I do think that it's a critical space in which the truth about inequities and oppression like racism and homophobia, um, xenophobia, all of these things can actually be discussed very plainly, explicitly. Um, And it's important to recognize them explicitly with the client, you know, to kind of name what may be going on Mm -hmm. rather than thinking that it it might just be an intrapsychic kind of experience or a fantasy, but in fact, these are real things. How do we then help our clients navigate inequity? So just like we might help a client try to figure out inequity in a, uh, a relationship with a spouse or a partner, right? We do that all the time in psychotherapy. And so why are we not doing that in terms of inequities that exist in their workplace or their school or in their relationships with people when it comes to racial inequities or racism. These are things that we can we can do. I think part of the issue is that when we have such a narrow idea, narrow conception of what trauma encompasses, this becomes a bigger problem, and we don't naturally go there. If we think about our diagnostic systems, the ICD or the DSM, they still do not include racial trauma as a or racial violence as a precipitant to PTSD, hmm. which is amazing. It is, and and we have ample evidence in psychotherapy in in research in psycho, uh, psychology research that racism and experiences of racism are directly related to mental health symptomology like depression, anxiety, suicidality, and so on. So when we don't have our diagnostic systems recognizing that racial trauma has profound consequences on mental health, well-being, sense of self, and identity. When we don't have that recognition, we tend to think that that is not the type of trauma that we're supposed to work with in psychotherapy. But in fact, it is one significant type of trauma that we that every therapist should be thinking about. It's it's bizarre to me that the U.S. government is ahead of our field in terms of naming hate crimes as a particular form of violence. That's right. We have a le- we have a legal designation for it. Why can we not have a psychological designation for it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, over the last couple of decades, and especially in the last ten years, there have been psychologists who have been arguing for the inclusion of 
racial trauma in our diagnostic mm. systems, but recognizing that in, in the field of traumatic stress. Again, if it's not mainstreamed into our training, into our everyday thinking as therapists, we continue to see it as a special issue, as a separate thing that maybe a therapist of color can handle, but not anybody else, you know? So there's a way in which we try to, try to segregate these issues. Mm-hmm. Which is a which is a big problem. Yeah. So I saw a, a clip, either that or an interview online, where you mentioned something about uh, people coming to therapy with the presenting issue being kind of what they see in the news more than ever. Yeah. This has been my experience as well, and it's gotten to the point where I think pretty much every session, at some point in the session. Uh, these days is about what's happening in the news. Yeah, right. And it's really interesting because there's been a recent study, and I believe it came out in 2018, where the researchers, it was uh, Solomonov and Barber, they did a study that examined therapist disclosures of political attitudes. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that, in fact, um, clients benefited from therapist disclosures of their political uh, beliefs mm. and uh, since 2016 in particular and and that clients benefited from feeling as though they had a political similarity to their therapist. Yeah. <laughs> Again, that's another area that I think we tend to think, oh, we don't talk about politics and therapy, but in fact we do all the time, whether it's implicit or not. The therapist is offering their perspective politically all the time, and so is the client. I think certainly since the 2016 election, I think these conversations have become more explicit. I've heard many clients talk about how distressed they are by the present administration under Trump. They are horrified by the fact that, some people are horrified by the fact that, you know, he was elected at all, uh, that he, how could somebody who, claim to sexually assault women, how did he get elected? Uh, as one example, other people terrified about his immigration policies and the separation of children from parents. And, you know, so these are conversations that come up routinely or that I'm just exhausted by the news and I'm so tired and I don't want to watch it as much, but I have to keep up with what's going on. And then now with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and the exhaustion that comes with that and the sadness and just the inability to grieve anything that's going on, any single thing, because there's such a barrage of loss and pain and grief. It just makes it impossible to feel like people are out of a crisis yet. I've been meditating quite a bit on George Floyd and his murder and what it meant partly because it seems like a thing that has been absolutely ordinary in our society for so long, and yet it caused such a shockwave through our culture, even through white Trump-supporting culture. I received texts from my Trump-supporting relatives eager to express solidarity, which of course is its own complexity, but it seems like, as opposed to all of the names I've seen in the news, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Eric Garner, Philando Castile, Breonna Taylor, and so many more. As opposed to their murders, the murder of George Floyd galvanized many people, even many people who had not galvanized before. Maybe it was that they could no longer ignore this, 
Maybe it was that they could no longer ignore that this was brutal after the video showed the officer on top of Floyd for 8 minutes and 46 seconds after he had stopped breathing. Maybe it was the joking of the officers around him or the way they talked to him. Maybe the fact that we are all stuck at home caused people to pay attention for the first time. Maybe for many white people it finally crossed their line. But my sense is that this is new to many white people and so, so old to many people of color. The work you're doing is to say you can't practice therapy without addressing race and culture. Um, You can't really address the last four years without addressing race and racism. There is a particular terror that our patients of color are coming in to therapy with, and also that as a white therapist, it's even more important for me to voice even if it's imperfect allyship, to voice that allyship. This is very important because it's more important than ever to make those conversations more explicit, to be able to bear the discomfort, the pain that comes with these conversations. We are trained to bear difficult things. That is something that we have to do. You know, there are clients who are terrified on a daily basis. They were terrified before Trump uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of people of color, for example, dealing with the police um, and the kinds of conversations that I know some of my patients, my clients have with their children around Mm -hmm. race and the police and being scared for their kids or being scared for their loved ones. That was happening before Trump and now it's heightened. Now it's even more so the case. There are people who are incredibly scared of ICE and mm-hmm. uh, the fear of deportation. I have, I've had clients come in in the last, you know, three years for the first time seeking a therapist because they're afraid of being deported or of a loved one being deported. Even when they have, you know, temporary documentation, they're afraid it's going to be taken away from them at any moment. They're terrified, particularly when the, the return to the country of origin means that they would have to endure persecution there. And one client comes to mind where he called me and said, the the only reason I'm seeking help is because I have panic attacks at night. I can't sleep because I'm so scared that ICE is going to come and mm-hmm. take me. So this is the presenting issue. He's not coming in because he was depressed long term or that he's dealing with conflicts in his family relationships. He's coming in because he is afraid of being pulled over, you know, taken out by ICE and uh, under this administration. So this is causing direct harm and an immediate, you know, in terms of immediate uh, safety. And to, and to say to that patient, never mind that, let's talk about er- early object relations, is to totally miss that patient. It totally misses that piece. It doesn't mean that the client doesn't want to talk about those things. Right. They do. But, they're, you know, what's, what's the cause of their distress right now? And what's the cause of distress uh, at all, and it's it's not early object relations. It's the ways in which a, a society doesn't take care of this person. You know, so if you want to talk about object relations, that's where we need to center it. He cannot mm-hmm. trust that his new home. He cannot trust that he is safe in his home in in the broader sense. The government, who should be 
caring for all people living in the United States is not doing it. So there's a break in object relations, but only when we think about it in a different context, not in the caregiving context like we typically do. Mm-hmm. And so the work you're doing is taking uh, those early theories to to a more you know a more extensive, exhaustive conclusion, which was always logical. It's just you know I again I'm a little bit more jaded that it's to me it seemed about maintaining power and and maybe in the early days survival and wanting to be seen as legitimate, but maintaining that status that it's taken a long time to get to where we can talk about, and and there's still work to do to be able to talk about um, what we see in the news. Right. The fundamental psychoanalytic concepts around the unconscious, around object relations, around, you know, all of these concepts I think are really critically important for understanding what's happening around us and its impact on us individually. But there's no reason why psychoanalysis couldn't expand to include those things and to actually use its concepts, right, to understand what's happening and to contribute its understanding to broader society. I can imagine how psychoanalysis can inform various aspects of policy, whether that's in schools or government or healthcare. There's a lot. There's a lot of potential there. But I think if we kind of stay constrained to this idea that uh, it has to be practiced only in a certain way or that we have to stick to the concepts as they were defined a hundred years ago, then it's certainly not going to be as helpful. Right. What are the specific things that are, um, that are giving you hope and motivation these days that's happening either in your work or the work of others? One of the things that I find really hopeful, and I have been hopeful for some time now, but continue to be so, um, is that there's there's a growing language um, around people's experiences that is being expressed in psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic literature. There are people who are writing in a different way examining social context and giving language to experiences of clients that didn't exist a while back. And I think the more you can sort of, you can capture that experience and articulate it and create new language within a field, then it offers, I think, a great sense of hope around a discipline that's now reflecting more of those experiences rather than excluding them. Mm. Are there people you'd like to point me to? Sure. You know, this came out a while back in 2000, actually. There's um, David Eng and Shinyi Han, who mm-hmm. developed the concept of racial melancholia, which refers to a sense of melancholia, melancholic state, um, sadness, mm-hmm. uh, withdrawal that relates to racism uh, faced by Asian Americans specifically when they're treated as the perpetual foreigner, regardless of how many generations might have lived in the U.S., you know. And we're seeing that very much in the news this year. Exactly, exactly. And the anti-Asian American racism. And it's interesting that a concept that was developed in 2000 and, you know, now 20 years later is highly relevant. Mm-hmm. It tells us that we haven't done much work on a societal level on these issues. Um, but there's language for it. There's language that we can draw on and say, this is what this is. And I, I think that the language is critical for younger generations to draw on. 
that they have words now for what they have experienced or their families have experienced, their parents or grandparents have experienced. They can do something differently with that now. So that is hopeful. Um, And I would also say that there are debates within psychoanalysis now that are more active. Even though I wish that, you know, these ideas would be more mainstream, whether it's in psychoanalysis or just the world of psychotherapy more generally, I see movement of thinkers and writers and activists who are trying to do something with psychoanalytic concepts that feel very meaningful and purposeful for people of all different backgrounds, you know, whether it's uh, white or non-white, heterosexual, um, LGBTQ. Yeah, there is movement around that. So there's a long way to go, but I do see some hope with this. Dr. Tamala Nara, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Our sincere thanks to Dr. Usha Tamalanara for joining us on the show. This has been Between Us, a psychotherapy podcast, which is produced by myself and Mason Neely, who also composed our music. Find us on social media. We have an Instagram, a Facebook, a Twitter, all of that stuff. Make sure to keep in touch, leave us a comment, and until next time, take care.